Hello, Alex. Are you there, bud? Hey, what's up? How's things? Good. Thomas, you there? I'm here. Awesome. Late Night Cypher with Tank and Smitty in the Cypher, episode two. Thank you guys for joining me. If you guys did not see, um, I did the video interview uh, portion of the show on Facebook Live. That's that's, uh, facebook.com slash late night cypher with Tank and Smitty. You can watch that. The questions will be similar, but a little bit different as well because now we got Tank on. So he's going to have some questions too for Alex. Uh, For you guys don't know, Alex ran for U.S. Senate out of New York City for the Libertarian Party. We're very excited to have him ask him some questions. So how are you doing tonight, Alex? I mean, I just asked you that, but how are you doing anyways? <laughs> I'm good. Just, just chilling. This, uh, yeah, just relaxing today. Awesome. Take, how are you doing out there, buddy? Doing great. Can't complain. Just hanging out. Uh, yeah, I saw the Facebook uh, live video. So, yeah, I'll have some questions. I asked a couple questions. I don't think they got looked at because you guys were moved on to other topics. No big deal. Okay. But uh, we'll get into those uh you know, as this, as this moves on. Absolutely. Um, so Alex, tell us a little bit, um, about the libertarian party. I know you went into it on the video, but uh, let the, the audio of viewers here on, uh, on iTunes and, uh, et cetera, know libertarian party about for those who don't know about it. The libertarian party is a political party to create change in a libertarian direction. And, uh, change in a libertarian direction just means giving people, more control of their life, body, and property in as many realms as possible. Um, you know, basically, if you want to kind of see sort of what the latest iteration of our party platform is, I lp.org um, or the join by going to lp.org slash join. But bottom line is we're trying to create change from all different levels, whether it is by getting libertarian candidates elected so that way they can enact libertarian legislation, whether it is getting libertarian ballot initiatives done so that we can make change directly at the ballot box. Or just by educating people on what the issues are. Because bottom line is that the change, the world around us, how every way we interact is based on the, the, the prevailing knowledge around us. Um, so as we educate people, you change the world. Awesome. Awesome, man. Tank, do you have any questions? I want to get some of yours out before we, we go any further because I know you had a couple there. No, yeah. My, mine were more on uh, some of the specific, specific topics. But uh, uh, what – what made you, Alex, what made you decide to get involved in the Libertarian Party? How did, that, how did that come about? In the same way that I ended up running for vice chair, someone asked. Um, so essentially what happened is I've been involved as a Libertarian, small L, meaning just uh, someone promoting Libertarian ideas since uh, 2007, 2008. But it was in 2013, um, the New York City mayoral candidate for the Libertarian Party, Michael Sanchez, actually asked me, he's like, Alex, would you want to be our candidate for public advocate? And I said, yes. And that's how I became uh, the candidate for public advocate for New York City in 2013. That got me involved with the party. I like the people that I met. I built good friendships with them. And it's those relationships that got me to stick around. And, and sticking around got me to get involved in so many different projects and see so much potential that, um, you know, I've gotten more and more passionate. And then uh, last year, Johnny Adams from the Johnny Rocket Launchpad was the first one to ask me, he's like, Alex, you should run for vice chair. And then Larry Sharp, currently running for governor of New York, asked me, you should run for vice chair. And then I ended up running for vice chair and, and I won. You know, it's, it's awesome. true. It's yes. true. To see what people say, it's what people say is, um, 
You know, if you run, uh, Ron Paul always used to say, you know, when you run an election, you, you always run the risk that you just might win. <laughs> <laughs> I think Donald Trump had that same uh, feeling, too, uh, when he saw those final polls. <laughs> yeah, no, I can just imagine him on the day of, like, oh, I actually won this thing. <laughs> oh, now it's about to get real. Yeah, now, now it's real. Now, Alex, um, how do you feel about the current uh, political climate that we're going through? Like we discussed in the video uh, portion of it, um, it, it's just very polarizing and it's it's just left versus right. No one's willing to compromise uh, on a lot of issues. Um, how do you think the current climate is going right now in politics in this country? It's volatile. It's disruptive. I mean, the whole Trump presidency has been disruptive um that i don't think at least disruptive i don't think is is a bad thing especially as a libertarian i want more and more people caring um about what the political parties are right and if anything the last couple years have made people really suddenly care about oh my vote kind of can have an effect on things it does elections have consequences which means but the thing is that doesn't that doesn't change the fact that when you look at the two the, the major party duopoly that the options kind of suck. Yeah. So that means people are going to probably be more likely. And I mean, anecdotally, I'm seeing this by seeing more and more people showing up at meetings, more and more new members at meetings as I travel the country at different meetings. Um, more and more people are care about you know how how politics affects their life, and honestly, they want that they want it to affect their life less, and they've been joining the Libertarian Party. So I mean, from um, from a party growth standpoint, this is this has been a good environment for us because it creates exactly it's the environment that kind of illustrates why we're doing what we're doing why government is so dangerous why why you want to limit that power um now real outcomes it's scary um i mean you know of course i enjoy getting a little bit more of my paycheck but i don't like seeing a lot of the other um you know abuses that i'm seeing or a lot of, a lot of the other volatility that i'm seeing um but you know the thing about decisions made at that level there's little you can do until 2020 right so the best so the best thing i can do right now is just focus my energies on making the libertarian party the strongest most powerful institution it can so that we can actually have a right direction for once well yeah i I think i saw this uh this election definitely got me more involved with politics um but i i saw a lot of people talking about voting basically for the lesser of two evils right it's right it's like You've got one. You got Hillary or Trump, and yeah. it's like, well, who's going to screw up less, right? Now, I don't know if, you know, you could say it could have been worse with Hillary or whatever. I mean, every, everybody can say whatever they want, but I mean, that's that's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing, okay, we've got two options. What do we got to work with? Let's vote for the lesser two evils and see how we turn out. That's kind of the way I I viewed it. Do you think that was well, accurate? That's the way it's been for several election cycles, and that's the problem. When it's when you're trying to vote for the le- when people will vote for the lesser two evils, then the job of the political candidates isn't to say, "Hey, I'm a good candidate." It's the other guy is more evil than me. Um, right. and that's how I win your vote. But so, and then the thing is that by convincing you that the other candidate is like the most horrible person on the planet, I'll do one of two things: I'll get you to vote for me out of fear of them, or I'll just get you to not vote at all. Right. Either way, I win, and that's a horrible dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, as the Libertarian Party has, is trying to do something different, trying to do something um, that's a harder sell, because we're not trying to scare people from voting, 
we're not trying to scare people into voting away their rights. We're actually trying to inspire people to feel so optimistic about the power they have in their own life, in themselves, that they want to take their rights back and that they'll vote to take their rights back. And that you can't use fear. You can't scare people into taking control of their lives. You have to inspire them to. So as, as, a, as a libertarian, we're, we're, we're making a very different proposition. It's a harder proposition, but it's the right proposition and it's the right time for it. Yeah, I felt like for me personally, um, it was the first time that I had voted outside of the two major parties. I, I voted Democrat my whole life, which would be two elections, uh, being 33. So it'd be two elections. And I'm 33 too. Yeah. Oh, nice. And uh, <laughs> I just felt like I didn't like the way the, uh, the DNC evolved themselves in the political process in a way that I thought was very undemocratic, um, especially once the emails got released, it felt like almost betrayal because I felt like Bernie never really had a shot because they had tabbed Hillary as, as their pick and they weren't going to put their support behind Bernie, no matter what happened. And I just thought they just forced, you know, this standard Clinton name because, you know, they, she was a female. Um, she was a Clinton and she, they felt that the Democratic Party would come out more for her. And I just – it was very bad taste. I was already on the fence with her as it was because of some political issues I had with, with her um, with lying on different things. But it, that really just buried it for me to the point where I wasn't going to vote for Trump, but I definitely wasn't going to vote for Hillary because I just felt like the way Bernie was treated uh, in that, it was just very, very wrong. And with Lieberman Schultz like just – getting fired and then getting hired on the uh, Hillary Clinton team. I just thought it was so transparent and they just didn't even care that we knew that, that what was going on, they were just going to do it anyways. And um, I, I went third party and I, I wound up voting for uh, Jill Stein at the time. And I, I just think that this country has a huge, huge problem. And I think, you know, people like you um, in the libertarian party, um, and other parties. Um, I think it's a good thing. What, how do you guys get on the debate stage on the national, on the national level? Because uh, I saw that it has to be a certain percentage for, for a, a third party to get onto the debate stage since it's privately funded. Do you know anything about that? Yeah. Now, basically the, um, the commission of presidential debates was essentially a private organization created by the two parties. So basically the idea was, okay, we're going to create this organization, they'll organize the debates, we'll fund it, but basically this allows us to control the criteria so that way third parties can't be in the debates. Right. So essentially, if we, even if we did get the 15% that you're supposed to get to get in the debates, they'd probably just change the rules. Wow. Um, you know, that's, that's, I mean, we, that happens all the time, and it happens in much more higher impact things, like Washington, in Washington State, to earn ballot access, you have to get a certain number of percentage of the vote. Wow. And, with Gary, and Gary Johnson was the first one to actually get that percentage of the vote right. and actually get Washington ballot access. The problem was, traditionally, they, don't count, they never counted the write-in ballots in Washington. So the percentage would just be based on everything but the write-ins. Right. So based on that, based on the way they traditionally did it, we got the right percentage. But because it would mean we'd have ballot access, they're like, oh, well, we should count the write-in votes too now. We'll break with tradition just so that way you guys don't get ballot access. Right. So they counted the extra votes that knocked us like 0.01 percentage below 5% and said, nope, nope, you guys don't get ballot access, um, which means we're spending tens and sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars 
to get on a ballot in the state. So when you're spending that kind of money just to be considered, that's money you can't spend to actually reach people right. and to get into a debate stage. But the thing is, to me, that's a temporary problem um, because basically new media is giving um, more and more voices to more and more people. Now, at, the, at, at this juncture, we still have a large population of people who don't use internet, who don't listen to podcasts, but that's changing more and more every day. And, um, you know, millennials are becoming, or if they are now, I think the largest voting block. So we, that audience that does you, that is more influenced by the internet, that does get a lot of its information from the internet, it's becoming more and more the people who vote the majority. And that's going to have an impact on the effects of debates and the effect of the traditional way elections work right. and effect on the traditional control in elections. So a lot so, of those things that kind of kept third parties out are going to become less powerful. Do you think that will happen on this next election or do you think it'll take another four years after that? Um, I think it's going to take some more time um, okay. at a presidential level. I think we're okay. already starting to see the change happen at a local level. You're starting to see, we're starting to see a lot more uh, local people win offices as libertarians. You're starting to see a lot more people who hold office already as other parties switching to libertarian. So it becomes a domino effect. And that domino effect has already started, but it's a bottom-up domino effect. Like, basically, you got to think of it like, like politics is, is a long game. So in order for me to build credibility, you know, you may want to run for that city council race. Now, which where basically I don't necessarily need to have a lot of money. I don't need a lot of media. I just need to lock, knock on a thousand doors. I can reach pretty much every voter and you won your election. But once you do that, now the media cares about you a little bit more because you're a little bit more credible. Right. People who want to donate will now donate a little bit more because they think you're a little bit more credible. And people who want to vote for you will vote for you because they think you're a little bit more credible. So now you can go win the state legislature seat. Then you can start winning the congressional seats. Then you can start winning the U.S. Senate seats. And then you win the presidency. So right now, we're still kind of still in that level of trying to win a lot of city council seats, state legislature seats. But okay. we're starting to kind of break through there. Um, and once you break through there, then the next step is you start winning some federal races. It's going to take, again, probably not the, probably within the next, I would say, you know, 2024 um, is, I think, we're going to be a, a, a force to be reckoned with. I think in 2020, it's still a possibility. Right. I mean, especially depending on who the Democrats nominate, it, we could get a repeat of 2016 where basically the two options, the two duopoly options are so unacceptable that, you know, third parties have a voice, will still have a voice. And I think they're going to have a voice anyways because the cat's out of the bag, the genie's out of the bottle, and people are paying attention to what 30 parties are doing. They are looking for their escape raft from uh, the current system. It's just basically who can build the most credible uh, raft with the most credible message the soonest. And I think the Libertarian Party is in position to do that. We're further along than anybody else. And um, the way we, just, just our philosophy allows us to grow quicker because, we're, because basically our whole philosophy is around letting everybody kind of do their thing and learn from mistakes. So a lot of us are learning from mistakes quicker than in other parties that try to control how everything goes around from the top. And what happens, they end up growing slower because they're not having as much trial and error to discover what works and what doesn't work. Right. Now, what do you think, in in your opinion, because it was such, it seemed like, at least from the media's perspective, that Hillary Clinton was such a shoe-in to win, what do you think was the real downfall? I know that it was reported that there wasn't enough um, college-educated white people that were actually coming out to vote for Hillary Clinton. 
but then that was oh. that, that was debunked as well. And do you think she just turned people off? Um, uh, do you think that the Bernie camp just never translated? Because I know for me being a Bernie fan, when I saw him after all the things he was saying about Hillary in the debate, uh, the debate process, it really threw me off when he put his support behind her because I wasn't behind her from the beginning. And just because he was throwing his support behind the Democratic Party, that wasn't getting me in, too. Do you, do you think that – what, what do you think, in your opinion, was the reason why she lost and, and, and why not enough people came out um, and made more numbers to vote for her, for her? Oh, I mean, bottom line is this. I mean, Bernie and Trump spoke to a very similar audience. Um, a very sort of former middle class um, audience that that basically has been forgotten because of globalization. Now, I think globalization is a good thing overall, and I think it's benefited more people than it's hurt. Um, but there are people that it's hurt, and a lot of those people have been disenchanted. They have felt ignored. That no one has appreciated what their struggles have been, as autom- as automation has limited jobs, as uh, um, offshoring has as as limited jobs. And it's not even that, that that's that's what the cause is. The cause is just the world is rebalancing itself. Right. But what people see, they see the offshoring, they see the automation, and then they blame. They see the immigration, and then that's where they naturally kind of put the blame, whether it's the right place or the wrong place. Um, and basically, Bernie and Trump spoke to that sentiment. That sentiment that oh man, life used to be better 30 years ago. Why isn't it so good now? Even though oftentimes when people talk about how good things were, it's always a very romantic view because you don't remember all the bad stuff about how things used to be. Right. Um, so they spoke to that sentiment that was no that no one else was speaking to on both sides. And so I do think a lot of Bernie people ended up voting for Trump because he was the only person sort of speaking that sort of uh, skepticism for uh, globalization. Like I, the way I would put it, I always put it is that Trump appealed to the people who lost their jobs at the factory over the years. While Bernie Sanders uh, appeal to their kids, right? Um, um, and uh, I disagree with a lot of them on their practical policy uh, recommendations. And even though both of them were quite different in their policy recommendations, but similar in a lot of ways, as far as where they're coming from. But they were speaking to an audience that no one else was speaking to, and that's why that's why they click. Um, and you know, that's something that all political factions should, should realize that. You know, you got to make sure that you don't you don't you don't forget people. Right. Absolutely. Um, Tank, you're all right over there. Here's some ruffling going on. You're lifting weights. What are you doing over there? No, I'm, I'm walking around the garage, man. Uh, <laughs> I was like, what's going on over there? Um, what do you think um, as far as jobs in this country? It's always a debate like up and down uh the numbers go up and people get praised and then they drop back down and then it's trump's not doing enough what do you think is uh the best way to get jobs back in this country effectively see i i me personally i I always hate the question of jobs because it's 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 missing the point okay um because it's not about it's not about whether there's more jobs less jobs it's it's about the ability for people to have a quality of life um, uh, one moment. Mm-hmm. Waiting for this. Okay, there we go. Um, it's all about quality of life. So at the end of the day, you could create lots of jobs, but if if the economy isn't working right and using things more productively, like 
then what's going to happen is that people may have jobs, but they're buying less stuff. They can afford less. This is what's basically happening now. Right. We create so many policies that just try to artificially make jobs that the income that jobs have don't buy as much stuff because the amount of basically, basically we're creating more incomes without creating more stuff to purchase. So you create this sort of really bad environment. Um, you know, like what's important is that we have a true economic growth in the sense that people are, you have the freedom in the world where people try to redeploy resources in ways that mean in the future people will have more stuff. Like I've explained this a lot better at other times. Right. But like if there's a, let's say there's like a decline in the number of jobs, mm-hmm. it depends why. If it's, you know, basically if it's because there's a new technology and jobs in one particular industry are dropping, but a new industry is growing out of it and then that will soon replace those jobs and create... And also, and the thing is, it's not just the new industry that creates new jobs. So, for example, there was like no, like the Broadway entertainment, the entertainment industry, and the way it is didn't exist like as much a hundred years ago. Right. But because it was innovations um, that allowed less people to have to do this job, that job, this job, and allowed companies to be more productive, people had more time for leisure, and that created new industries and new demands for labor. Whether it's to entertain, and then I mean nowadays, I mean now there's people who make money full time podcasting. Yep. That wouldn't be. That would not exist if technology hadn't advanced the way it is. It creates new demands for labor elsewhere. Now, where it sucks is that not everybody necessarily has the skills that the people who lost their jobs don't have the skills that translate into the new jobs. And that's where there is like real life friction. Right. But that's where we need to encourage each other to help each other. Like, that's the problem. We keep saying, okay, well, you know, there's a problem. The government's got to fix it. But no one's asking, how can we fix each other's problems? Because if I help somebody else, they might be help, willing to help me later on down the road. But we've, We've all we all have conceptually replaced government with the idea of charity and helpful. We think if we get government to fix somebody else's problem, that's the same thing as me fixing somebody else's problem. Right. And until we kind of reverse that thought process, what's going to happen is that you're not going to really change this economic dynamic that that basically leads to resources not being deployed efficiently, which means we're not moving forward. We're not uh, able to provide as much more for more people. Although, from a global perspective, more people are doing better around the world than ever before. Right. I mean, so, I mean, yet it depends on what, you know, what scale you're looking at. at. But there are people who are the, the, there are winners and there are losers to every change. But the thing is that in order for us to make sure we keep winning, we have to make sure that we, 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 we individually, as individuals take responsibility to th- ask ourselves what we can do as an individual in helping people who might be on the losing end of the stick. So that way people don't certainly start uh, hankering for controlling each other. So um, let's use this as an example. So how, how do we fix that? Right. Cause you've got like uh, guys. And I think, I think Trump kind of focused on this. He's, he said, I'm going to bring back coal. Right. Um, we've talked about this before. I don't think he ever planned on that. I think he used that as a tactic to gain votes. Right. But, but, so what do you do with these these guys that have worked in a coal mine their entire lives their grandfather their you know their father them you know and now they are jobless so what do you do about that i mean it, is that on the individual to educate himself to move into a different field um i think there definitely um, is a portion of that but or is it on the the company that now is gone i mean i guess if the company's gone they, they can't, you know, move them into a different field. So uh, what do you think? At the end of the, at the, end of the day, it, you, the comp- I mean, the company is going to do what the company is. Some companies are much better 
at giving severance packages, at providing retraining programs and whatnot. And again, it depends on the situation. But at the end of the day, I think as far as trying to help people within a community, I think the local community is the best place to do it. Because, mm-hmm. for example, if, I, if, I, if, if it's a small mining town where maybe they need more welders, if I create a training program to train everybody to become carpenters at the national level, that's not going to help people when the demand's for welders. Right. And that's the problem at the national level. You, you don't oftentimes have the information. Um, the more national or the bigger scope you get, the less tailored information you're getting and the less tailored policy you're making. So I'd rather those kind of programs to help the community come from the community who knows where those new demands are, are it can exist and where they can, where the retraining is going to get the most value. Um, but also nowadays, I mean, retraining does, isn't, doesn't have to be a huge cost. I mean, if you want like basically anything is reachable on a Udemy or on a YouTube or whatnot. I mean, how many people like, like us have become broadcasters overnight? We didn't necessarily have to go, you know, suddenly be like, oh, we're going to go to like 10 years of broadcasting <laughs> yeah. or something. You know, we just said, hey, we're going to do something cool and we learned it. So we're in a world where people have the ability to empower themselves with new skills more than ever. Um, it's just a lot of times people get so focused on the problem, they don't focus on the solution. And that's not, right. that's not a government. There's no government. The government can't fix that. That's just... Oh, that's a perspective change. And that, right. that comes from us talking to each other and trying to help each other process and look at situations better. There's no amount of policy. There's no amount of forcing somebody to be responsible for somebody else that's going to make our perspectives better. That's going to be coming from us and, and helping communicate with trying to help each other have better perspectives. Right. So I, I look at it like this. If, if, I'm, if I'm in an industry that is becoming a dead industry, right, I've got a family to take care of. I'm going to then take it upon myself to look around, to educate myself, and I'm going to move into something else, right? And that's how I think. A lot of people don't think like that. So right. I agree mm-hmm. it should be more on like a personal or local level and not necessarily like, oh, you, you, you owe me this because, you know, Elon Musk is developing these Teslas. Now the oil industry is going to disappear. He owes me a job, right? I don't look at it like that. I look at it as like yeah. – you got you to gotta take personal responsibility and kind of look into the future. A lot of people, I think, have a problem doing that. But you got to look into the future and, and just, you know, take it upon yourself to make that change. So that's my yeah, – that's and, what I think. Oh, no, and I agree. I mean, the one thing uh, – like, a lot of people, when they hear that, they think, oh, like, you, uh, you just don't care. It's not that I don't care. It's just oftentimes the answer – like I was like mentioning earlier, it's sometimes people look at doing a government program, a national program, not as, oh, okay, people owe it. It just may logically seem like, oh, this, this is a good thing to help dampen the damage as the economy transitions. The problem is that national, gov- that national government, that national policymaker is not going to have the information to create a program that's effectively going to address it, no matter how theoretically it may make sense. Um, the person is going to know what you're capable of, what, like, what is it that, you're, that you can learn that you feel comfortable with learning is going to be you. But at the same time, it's not just you being personally responsible for yourself. But if you see these things coming, it's income, you know, we should go to each other and say, Hey, you know what? I'm planning for the future. You know, nudge, nudge, you should probably plan for the future too. Um, you know, so a lot of times it's, it's a lot, it's not just us being responsible for ourselves, but also inspiring each other to be more responsible for each other um, voluntarily, um, you know, consciously. Um, and, you know, because basically what's happened is that, it's basically the conversations become this this uh, binary, this very false false binary of it's either I force government 
I, I help others by forcing government to do it, or I help myself and, and help no one else. And there's a whole world in between that. Right. Um, so that's, that's, that's what I always want to try to get across, that it's, it's not that I don't want people to help each other. It's that I want people to help each other directly because they're going to have better information. When I'm talking to the person I'm helping, I know it's going to help them better, and I'm going to know what I'm capable of helping better. And you're going to end up actually getting better aid. Now, let me throw let me throw a little monkey wrench because I'm in the same page as you guys with and we talk about this a lot on our show about personal accountability and how, you know, a, a lot of people get judged for the few because they're not willing to take that personal accountability. But let, let's say like someone like me, for instance. Right. I lost my career that I was doing. I decided not to go back into that career, but to do a different career, which is which is photography. That's what I am. I'm a photographer. Now, I, cool. I moved to New York City, and this happens with a lot of people in a lot of different professions where you have the skills to do the job, you have the portfolio and the work experience to do the job, but now that's not good enough anymore as a worker. Now you need a, a degree for uh, someone to be able to say, okay, well, this person could now do the job. Now, I noticed when I was applying to – I mean I've applied to hundreds of jobs at this point, and – I don't even get a look because I don't have the piece of paper, even though I have the skills where do, where does like when you get to the, the so now I'm in school now I'm, I'm done with my first two years. I'm almost done with the next to get my bachelor's degree just so I can get an interview just just to, to have someone look at my work. Where does like education and jobs kind of clash? What can we do to to get people jobs to to show their skills without necessarily having to uh, mortgage their future in school necessarily? That's already ha- that's already happening. Basically, right now, the reason why that matters is because we, the economy is transitioning away. If you look like if you look at history, um, we've always the, the economic system has always changed every couple of generations. And that's the, where this is where a lot of people make a mistake. They think that the way that the economy was for their parents is the way the economy always is. Okay. So, I mean, once upon a time, you had feudalism, where basically people were like Game of Thrones, where basically you had a lord who owned the lands and everyone rented the land from the lord and gave them a big chunk of their crops. Right. Um, then you kind of move into industrialization, where you had all these big factories and people basically worked till they died um, at the same factory their whole life. Right. But it was still better than uh, feudalism. Right. And then we moved into a point where people started living longer and living long enough that you could retire, but you still worked at the same place your whole life, but now you had retirement. Then you had the whole idea of a career where you worked at different places, but you still worked for somewhere. But now we're moving away from that. Now we're starting to move into a freelancer's world. So in a world where everyone can generate their own income on their own accord by, by using things like Fiverr, by using Upwork, by using Uber, Airbnb, all these different platforms to be able to generate not one job, but several different income streams that equal a livable income. Um, you live in a world where basically it doesn't matter what degree you have. It matters how skilled you are. Right. Um, because if you, you have the skills, you can create the – you have to learn all the entrepreneurial stuff too. Um, but everyone can, everyone's basically a business of one. So if you're a photographer, you'll still have people who will hire you to be a photographer, but it might be 30 people who need you for one hour a week right? Um, versus one, one company who needs you for 30 hours a week. So we're shifting away to that. And in that world, the whole traditional university model where you have to spend all this money going to all this debt, it doesn't, it doesn't matter anymore. Um, so that problem will fix itself over time. The problem is there's a lot of damage in all, this, just the, 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 all the people in the middle who – do have to overcome the huge loans and overcome the time in school to just get their foot in the door. Right. Um, and that, that's, that sucks that we're in that transition period now, but we are transitioning. And the only thing that's slowing it down is a lot of laws that kind of 
our laws are always based on the economy of yesterday without any room for the economy to change. Right. So a lot of the, so a lot of those laws actually prevent it from changing because everyone's trying to force the new economy to be like the old economy. Um, but it's happening. Right. That's great, though. That's great to hear. Um, uh, Tank, do you have any other questions for Alex? I know uh, he, he's kind of pressed for time right here uh, before we let him go. Um, yeah, I wanted to talk about uh, just I had – I think two questions. Um, I know on the, on the Facebook live uh, broadcast, he had mentioned that libertarians are not for war and they're also for uh, not no prohibition. So uh, real quick, the two questions, if you, I mean, and you don't have to give a lengthy answer. I'm just curious if, if we're at, if we like go a route of having no war or reducing our military costs, do we not have to worry about a country such as Russia, who who has publicly came out and said they have new missiles that, you know, they can strike anywhere in the in the world with a nuclear strike? Do, I, do we not have to worry about that? I mean, or or, you know, what uh, what precautions would you have to take if we decided to, to go back on war? And if you you can answer that and then I'll ask the next question after that. Um. Bottom line is I do think there's an aspect of leadership that basically a lot. I do think the U.S. currently still is in a place where it has a leadership role or basically how it behaves, how it is seen is going to change how other countries behave. So the more offensive posture we have, the more offensive postures other countries will have. And I do think a lot of times the offensive postures of other countries are heavily influenced by the by by um, is a response more than it is a, uh, an attempt to provoke. Um so there's that aspect of it. But also, I think that if you work towards more trade with other nations, you don't generally want to have war with your trading partners. Right. Because people hate it when their food gets expensive. Um, so the more we trade with other nations, the more peace we can have with other nations. That's why I believe foreign policy should be focused on diplomacy and trade, not mm-hmm. war and bribery. Because oftentimes our foreign policy gets so so based around trying to look like the toughest guy in the room and also paying other guys to just to cooperate with us. Right. Um, um, it's it creates the wrong culture that then other basic other people emulate that, and then you end up having this sort of not you you that's not the that's not the message you want to send if you're the person that everyone's copying. Got it. Okay. And uh, the other question I have is uh, the prohibition. So uh, I think you touched on you know the legalization of marijuana, but what about other drugs? I mean, is do you believe that? all drugs should be legal and up to um, the people, whether they want to use it or not. Do you think that legalization of, of all drugs, you know, talking about, let's say, cocaine or heroin or, or those type of drugs, do you think legalization of that would cut down on maybe some of these murders or drug cases or, um, you know, I think deaths ending, because of it? Ending prohibition, and this goes for anything. It goes, again, for, like I mentioned, when it comes to immigration, guns, drugs, sex work, um, when you end prohibition, it's going to reduce some of the negative outcomes. So with drugs, it will reduce, it will reduce um, overdoses because a lot of the overdoses don't happen because just because people are using the drug, but it's because when they go to the black market, they get much more impure drugs because there's no quality control in black markets. Um, right. Also, you're talking about the violence in black markets. Um, and also, people are going to be more willing to seek help if they don't feel like if it's, if it's, if it's, if it's, a, if it's treated as a medical problem, not a criminal problem. Um, so, I mean, my, my brother died of drug use 
Um, and part, a big chunk of that is just basically, I mean, one, it was just, just the life he had. He had a, he, um, we had different parents and he had a different childhood than I did. But I mean, but also on top of it is just that, you know, when you, you, you're not as willing to ask for help when basically it's basically what you're doing is you're admitting to a crime instead of admitting to being, having a medical issue. Right. When it's so, taboo. Yeah. It's harder. There's, there is a culture, there's a cultural change that needs to change here that allow us to seek more help, but also reduce those negative outcomes and reduce violence, which also will improve the economy because you're freeing up all those resources um, that, that go into all, all, all the drug war, um, mm-hmm. which literally there is, we, you're not reducing, there is no positive outcome from the drug war the way it is done now. There are no reduction in, uh, you're only having an increase in uh, addiction. You're only wasting more resources, which means more taxes, which means more regulations. And, uh, and then all the people who end up being put in the system who can't have jobs afterwards. Um, and then the, and then basically the, 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 the chain of the chain of ramifications that has on families and whatnot, there's all cost the way we do it now. So there's no reason to keep doing it the way we do it now. Right. Well, sorry, sorry to hear about your brother. Um, but, uh, I, I appreciate that response. No problem. And, um, Alex, I just wanted right before I let you go, I just wanted to touch on something you said with trade and how, how trade, uh, eliminates some of that, um, I guess that conflict between the two, the, I'm, I'm in agreement with that because you don't want to fight with people you're trading with, especially for essential goods and such. Why do you think, uh, why is Trump then uh, posturing so much when it comes, are we really paying that much in tariffs and, and taxes and, and are they not paying their fair share to the point where he's actually just trying to get people to, to own up? Or, or to pay their fair share, or, or what is, what is his, do, what do you think his tactic is with that? Um, I think Trump looks at it like a big game of risk, where you know either he wins, <laughs> um, or they, or they win. So it's like basically, you know, he looks at it as a zero sum game. So anything he can get for him is something other. Someone else, the more someone else loses, the more he wins, and the more he, someone else wins, the more he's losing. Right. So um, it's an old mercantilist view where basically um, everyone, where basically a lot of the old mercantilists and economics focused on, oh, well, you know, it's all about accumulating currency. Um, but then what happens is if you do that, you cause just as bad problems as you do if you just buy stuff. Right. Okay. I mean, if I have all the money in the world, it's just as bad as having none of the money in the world. Um, so, but bottom line is, if it, were, if it were up to me, I mean, I would just zero out every tariff in the U.S. I don't care what other countries charge us or don't charge us because if we became the easiest place because it's not just the tariffs the amount that you have to pay for the tariffs Mm -hmm. but it's also how much more complicated it makes it to do business so if the u.s was just said hey you know what we're not going to charge any tariffs we're not going to make it hard to import goods and export goods it'll be so much easier to do business from the u.s that companies will move here right because what's going to happen is because the thing is that a company doesn't just buy stuff from one country they buy from lots of countries so if the U.S. became the easiest place to do business with every country around the world, then every business is going to want to be here um, because it's going to be the easiest place to do business with all the trading, with all, all their vendors. Do, um, do you think that'll break down the, some of the monopolies we see and encourage more small business if that, if that was to happen? Anything you can do to lower costs and make it easier to do business is going to mean more small businesses or small or more newer businesses, more importantly. And those businesses will challenge and take market share from larger businesses where you're going to have more medium-sized businesses overall instead of just a handful of really giant businesses. Okay, man, that this has been such a great interview. I feel like I'm, I'm, there's so much still I even want to talk about. We'll have to have you on again. 
uh, for the people that are listening, um, the floor is yours. Um, if, is there any pages, websites, uh, podcasts that you do on your own that you want to get out there? Uh, the floor is yours, brother. Man, there's a lot of stuff that I do. So just go to alexmerced.com to learn about everything that I do. But also consider joining the Libertarian Party by going to lp.org slash join. Uh, we're doing great things. I'm, I'm now the vice chair of the party. So I'm, I'm going to be focusing on making sure we do great things, which we've been doing for the last uh, 40 years. So get involved. And I look forward to seeing you guys at different meetings. Awesome, man. This, is, this has been such a great interview. I appreciate you coming on and, and sharing and, and talking with us. And if anybody, like I said, you're out there, you're listening, um, you go to alexmerced.com. Um, if you want to watch our video uh, that we did with Alex earlier, uh, the video interview that's on um, facebook.com slash late night cipher with Tank and Smitty. Thank you guys for checking in. Uh, in about 30 minutes, we're going to be going live with our 37th episode, getting into a bunch of different top, uh, different topics. Um, and we'd love to have you guys join us there as well. Uh, Tank, you got anything else you want to say, brother? No, uh, Alex, thanks thanks for your time. Uh, it was great. Like like uh, Smitty said, I've got a million more questions, but I know we're, we're cramped for time. But definitely going to have to have you on again. And then uh, I think, uh, yeah, I think it'll be great for both of us. I no, appreciate it. No worries. And if you want, anyone ever wants to learn more about libertarianism, I have over 2,000 videos answering pretty much any question you can think of. And you can find them over there at libertarian101.com. Awesome. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Alex. Thank you, everybody, for checking in. In the Cypher, Episode 2, Interview Edition. Thank you for checking in. See you guys soon. Peace.